One other thing I forgot to mention. Um, management and Mr. Management, otherwise known as Kevin and Emma, have been working on a window display this Easter. So pop down to the church, probably best in the twilight or early evening, and just see what they've come up with. I think it's really pretty cool. Anyway, question for you. Have you ever been invited to an event, two events being held at the same time? My mum was very big on that if you'd said yes to someone, you didn't ditch them later when you got a better offer. Her generation put great stock on, your word is your bond, and I, I really respect them for that. One example is my first invitation to an event at a power Baptist was Rob Petrini's induction about, I don't know, a dozen years ago, say, so one Saturday night. Now, I would have liked to have gone, but I hadn't said yes, and there happened to be a Springbok all-black fixture that night. So, of course, I did my patriotic duty and stayed home. When I met Rob shortly after, I said to him, mate, that was crazy, Shigeline, you need to do something about that. He probably put my comment into his crazy Kiwi file, which is now probably quite large. I can hear him saying to me, oh, you Kiwis. He said it so often. Choices like these will identify what our values and priorities are. You know, critical national patriotic rugby test versus some other churches do. Anyway, a week out from Jesus' crucifixion, there were two parallel events happening in Jerusalem. The first is described as Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So pause me now and open your Bibles to Matthew 21 so you can read along with me. When they'd come near Jerusalem and reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, The Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, that is Zechariah, who said, Tell the daughter of Zion... Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Crowds that went ahead of him and those following were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Now the rest of his week in Jerusalem sees Jesus prophesying against the Jewish leadership clearing the temple courts of the rackets that were going on there, and generally speaking, uncomfortable truths to the powers of his world. It's one of the great two-fingered salutes of history, 
that Palm Sunday inaugurates and that we celebrate this morning. Now before I, I step back and try to put this story into the broad sweep of God's mission of saving a God's peop- uh, people to God's self, let's look at it more closely. Now one of the most curious things that pops out immediately when you look at this passage is that here on Sunday the crowds are saying, yay, Jesus, go, Jesus. And yet on Friday they were given the choice between releasing Barabbas, a, a, a zealot, a terrorist, a freedom fighter, if you will, or whatever, and Jesus. And they said, give us Barabbas and Jesus can go to the cross. It does seem curious. But I think the most likely explanation is actually you're talking about two events and two crowds. The crowds that would have been in the temple courts the following Friday would have been um, made up of priests and supporters of the priesthood and people who were involved in selling stuff in the temple markets, all of whom Jesus had really gone out of his way to pick a fight with. And they had no love for him because he stood between them and their interests. I imagine that Jesus was on the cross before very many of the common people of Jerusalem were any the wiser. Remember, it all happened very quickly from late Thursday night to Friday. Another thing that's often said is that Jesus, well, this Jesus of yours, he didn't claim to be anything more than a prophet or a rabbi or a teacher, and that we, the church who came afterwards, made him into the divine son of God for our own nefarious purposes. You know, the whole Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code thing. However, I think if you examine the text, and I want to do that now, it's quite apparent that Jesus was self-aware of who he was, his identity, and the significance of what he was doing. Think about it. At an earlier time, he must have prearranged with the people that owned the donkey, knowing that he could pick it up, knowing that in riding on a donkey into Jerusalem, he would be echoing Zechariah's prophecy cited in verse 5, and that the people would understand what this was intended to mean. He was claiming to be God's ordained king of Israel. And accepting their cries that he was the son of God, well, he and all of, knew, he and all of them knew that the prophecy was that the Messiah would come from David's line. And he didn't tell them to be quiet. He was quite happy to accept their recognition and praise. In fact, in Luke 19, which is the parallel um, recording of this event, we have the Pharisees saying, Jesus, you must rebuke your disciples for saying this. And what does he say? He says, well, if they wouldn't say it, the very rocks and stones would cry it out. He clearly had no problem being identified as a Davidic Messiah king. He accepted that praise. Now his journey to Jerusalem had started in Jericho, near the Dead Sea. And Jericho is one of the lowest points on earth. Now from Jericho to Jerusalem as the crow flies is not very long, but it's quite a climb because Je- Jerusalem is in a valley right up in the mountains that are sort of form the spine of Israel-Palestine. And in that journey, from a low point to a high point, I see a parallel in Jesus' ministry. If you think about the stories 
that you know. Often you find Jesus going around healing people and the first thing he says after the person's healed is don't tell anyone or don't tell anyone who did this for you. And when he counters um, some demons, they say, we know who you are, you're the son of God. He orders them to be quiet. The theologians call this posture, this flying under the radar, the messianic secret. Gradually, though, we see Jesus revealing more of himself, not to the crowd, but to his disciples. And we see them slowly coming to understand who he is. Well into Jesus' ministry in Matthew 16, which is only a couple of chapters back from where we are now, Peter famously confessed that Jesus was the Messiah or the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now here he is, entering Jerusalem in a manner which screams out, I am God's Messiah King. And this culminates in Matthew 26, 64. He's in front of the Jewish governing body and Caiaphas, Caiaphas the high priest, is there and Caiaphas says this to him. This is from yeah, Matthew 26, 64. I put you under oath before the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of the God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? And they answered, he deserves death. Jesus had now plainly revealed himself to the powers, the religious powers of his day, and that revelation precipitates his rapid and brutal execution. Within 24 hours, he was dead. He claimed a unique relationship with the divinity and paid the ultimate price for that presumption. He knew exactly what he was doing and the price that he would pay, which was a cost that we see him in the gospel stories counting all the way along up to that night in Gethsemane where he counts the cost and prays to the Father, if it's your will, take this cup of suffering away from me. The Sanhedrin would not have demanded his death for blasphemy if he was just saying, I'm a prophet or I'm a rabbi. His blasphemy was in claiming to be divine. And one final observation is that he does not enter Jerusalem in the style of a conquering king. Kings rode horses when they were off to war, but in a time of peace they rode on donkeys. He came to his people as a peaceful, godly king, not as some sort of conquering warrior who was out to tip over Roman rule. Well, Earlier I told you there was another significant event that weekend in Jerusalem. It's not recorded, I don't think, in the scriptures. But another powerful person entered town, also at the head of a retinue of people following him. And this was the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. You see, Jerusalem was the religious centre of Judea, but it wasn't really the commercial centre. Pilate normally lived in Caesarea on the uh, Mediterranean coast. 
and ruled from there. It was a much more cosmopolitan place, had a busy harbour, was easy to get to. And he typically only came up to Jerusalem during the Passover week. And the idea was to keep order. Because think about it. The Jews are celebrating God's deliverance from previous enslavement by Pharaoh. If ideas of revolt against the Romans are going to bubble up and get some legs, it's going to be that week. Sometime that weekend, through a different gate, at the west end of Jerusalem, Pilate rode in with in from Caesarea. And he would have been in full military regalia, full kit and caboodle. No peaceful donkey for him. He would have been riding a war horse. He would have been escorted by his standard bearer, along with an armed troop on horseback and probably some soldiers marching behind. This was a show of force, which was meant to project the power and the rule of Rome. The implicit message, don't you mess with us. And there would not have been cheering crowds to welcome them, and he wouldn't have wanted them. He wanted to be feared, because scared and cowed people won't make trouble. Their uniforms, their shields, their standards would have, been, would have had idolatrous symbols on them, honouring Rome's, God, Rome's gods and its current god emperor Tiberius. They stood very clearly in opposition to Israel's god Yahweh. Rome imposed crippling taxes and the locals had few, had few if any rights. They were a people exiled in their own land within an idolatrous empire. Their God-given religion had been domesticated as Rome had bought off the high priest while the ordinary people were practically slaves. So these two powers faced off against each other that week in Jerusalem. Jesus had thrown off that reticence and showed himself and revealed himself for who he truly was. He was God in the flesh, walking among us. There is no God behind Jesus. If you've seen him, you've seen the Father, as Jesus said to Philip in John 14. And in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is frequently described as the Spirit of Christ. The three are one. Jesus came to save, to save a people, to be God's people, his people. Whereas Pilate, well, he came to control, to maintain Rome's grip on the country, which would in turn, turn help Pilate's diplomatic military career. God the Father loves his creation and wants their best. While Satan and his satraps like Pilate want to exploit and control us, they use people. People are things to them rather than love them. And this, my friends, I think is the choice that the Easter story points us towards. In our world, in our time, the Pilate-Satan claim on us can seem to be quite attractive. The world will tell us that we can do whatever we like unless we directly hurt someone else, anything. That we should feel free to follow our urges wherever they may lead us, and that popularity and wealth are very important for a fulfilling life. Get them if you can. The often unstated subtext 
is that it's all about us. We are the measure of our value and worth. We are encouraged to be our own God. As it said in Judges about the very lawless period that that book was written in, each person did what seemed right to them. Satan wants us to worship ourselves. And if we do, we will cause him no trouble whatsoever. By contrast, Jesus wants to save us from the futility and despair of a self-determined life. He wants to save us into his body, the church, to heal us, to make us whole, and to give our lives a purpose beyond our wants or desires. Our gifts, our giftedness is for the benefit of all of us and the world that he is just seeking to draw to himself. This Easter we will gather for the first time in ages. And we can all be here because there is no longer a vaccine mandate and Easter camp has been cancelled. This can be a reset for you. If you have never turned to the Lord in repentance and trusted him with your life, well, it's time. He loves you better than you can ever love yourself. Then again, if you've walked with God through life but are struggling with the whole thing, see this Easter as a chance for you too to reset. He hasn't changed. He still loves you this much. Thank you. We'll see you in a week. Uh, great song of declaration, Good, Good Father. Oh, uh-huh.
so undeniable I can hardly speak He's so unexplainable I can hardly think as you call me Deeper still as you call me Deeper still as you Close our virtual service with a benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to make you stand without blemish in the presence of his glory with rejoicing, to the only God our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.